Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com And welcome back to Scarred for Life, the podcast where we open up old wounds by looking back at the films that scared us as kids. I'm Terry. And I'm Mary Beth. In each episode, our special guest brings with them a movie that traumatized them as a child. This week, our guest is Duncan Birmingham. He is a writer, TV producer, and a filmmaker who helped create the IFC series Marin and was a writer on the star show Blunt Talk. His debut feature, Who Invited Them, uh, was just released on Shutter. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This is a real treat. Thanks for joining us. We're really excited to to chat with you, particularly about uh, your your movie. And also, before we do get into uh, kind of like your horror history, I have a question because I went digging on IMDb and I saw that you got your start potentially for Weekly World News. I did. I did. I uh, I, I I love the Weekly World News. Um, I lived in Florida, and during, when I was in high school, I wanted to be a writer, and a, a friend of my neighbors worked at the National Enquirer, and uh, I worked there in the summertime. I was like a, I had described it as like, that was like my almost famous, but instead of Rolling Stone, it was the National Enquirer, you know, it's just like the office boy. That's more interesting to me than the Rolling Stone. Way more. Way more. Well, I did work at Rolling Stone after, and then, yeah, not interesting. Oh, my but, God. Uh, but but, but uh, on the same... Uh, uh, work campus, I'll call it, was the Weekly World News offices, which was just like this ragtag bunch of 12 people, um, really weird, really out there. And the second uh, summer I worked there, uh, I said, is, does, is there any space like Weekly World News? Can I be the office boy there? So I, I worked there for a couple a couple summers, a little stint after college. So so uh, every everyone, my college roommate and everyone I went to school with was in the Weekly World News. I would take their picture, <laughs> send their photos in, and they might pop up like six months later as like, uh, you know, a guy that uh, got Princess Diana's liver after she died or uh, a couple migrant workers who were killed by a citrus monster. I was always in there as some like really weird doctor. Um, so a lot of fun stuff. And there were also, the, 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 they have, we had so many crazy fans, not crazy fans, but well, some were crazy. We had, we had a lot of eccentric fans that would show up 
<laughs> and be in the parking lot, like waiting for the Weekly World News people. There was this guy, Doctor Love, who wore a uh, inflatable tube around his around oh. his waist, and he, <laughs> he had all kinds that of a, cures. That was a real man. That was a real he fan. was a real man. I thought you were going to say, was he a real doctor? And I was like, I don't know. I hope not. <laughs> no, no. I you hope know, not. I, Could I, have I been. <laughs> wow. But yeah, so the, the Weekly World News was, yeah, real, really fun group of people. And uh, yeah, I loved it. Loved it. That was one of my favorite things about going to the grocery store with my parents when I was a kid is like grabbing that and seeing where Bat Boy was and all of those kind of like wild ass stories. They were so good. And I got to say, if you flip through the weekly world news, at least back then, it was very hard to tell. Obviously, most of the stories are fabricated, but then there was a lot of stuff that would just be like some weird story that came over the, the Associated Press wire that they put in. So they, they kind of did a nice <laughs> job of like mixing up, you know, fact and fiction and then blended stories. But uh, yeah, I was there when the the creator of Bat Boy was there, Dick Culpa, I think that was his name, wow. and uh, he had quite a few, quite a few fans. I mean, I saw the musical, uh, the oh, Bat wow. Boy, the oh, musical played played here in Omaha. And it was it was fabulous. It was fabulous. Uh, he's always been a favorite of mine. But um, I so okay. So, but <laughs> Weekly World News, like, there's a lot of like you know cryptids and horror stuff about that. But take us back kind of to the very beginning. How did you get introduced to horror? I, I got introduced to, to horror by being uh, completely terrified and uh, staying away from horror for probably as long as I could. Um, okay. I was a, a huge scaredy cat. So, But I was also a movie buff. So mm. at a certain point, you're like, well, hold it. I've, I've seen all the Kubrick movies, but <laughs> I haven't seen The Shining yet. I've seen all the Friedkin movie, you know, Friedkin's big movies, but I haven't seen The Exorcist. Uh, you know, so, so I kind of went into horror probably two two ways one was uh or maybe three ways one was uh through kind of my favorite filmmakers and seeing their movies so kind of the, mm. a lot of the classy classy horrors like you know jaws exorcist like i said and and kind of like you know grin and bearing it because i was so terrified then obviously <laughs> the sleep i was this is i'm a child of the 80s so that there wasn't a, a no sleepover was complete without either uh friday the 13th on vhs or maybe a nightmare in elm street or possibly something a little a little grittier like sleepaway camp which really yeah. I remember riding. I still remember riding my bike home from a sleepover, and I was yeah b beside myself. So those those two ways. And then I'm I'm from Boston. There was a great uh, show, The Movie Loft, with Dana Hershey that showed okay. so many movies uncut, and they showed uh, they showed a lot of uh, movies of all types, but also some some great horrors on there. Just some like great great gr gritty movies that uh, all big time influenced who invited them, like like Straw Dogs, uncut oh. with Dustin Hoffman was on there. Oh, I watched shit. that as a kid, and that was you know wow. that obviously blew oh my, my mind. God. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember how old you were when you saw Straw Dogs? Because that's a that's a rough movie. I think I remember how old I was for 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 our pick today. I don't remember Straw Dogs how old okay. I was, but I okay. still lived in Boston, so I think I was I think I was under ten. Now a lot of the movies wow. were uncut, like Deer Hunter was uncut. Maybe Straw Dogs was a little cut. I I don't know. So uh, wow. yeah, through many many different roads to horror. So was your was like how did you get into cinema? Was your family like a big movie family, or did you kind of come into loving cinema on your own? Uh, we were we were movie watchers. No one in my family is like a cinema cinema buff or is in in okay. in cinema, but uh, certainly watch movies. Lived down the street from a, a video store. That I remember that was like one of my few you know first things i could do as a as a independent uh i wasn't an adult whatever i was a tween uh, going to the video store and renting mm -hmm. movies so and then later i worked at a video store yeah I, you know all my friends in uh, 
in high school and middle school, very into movies. So, uh, yeah, a little, little, little combination. But my parents were moviegoers. That's why it really bums me out. They're, they don't go to the movies anymore because they don't feel like there's anything for them to see. There aren't those, like, you know, Richard Gere-type sexy thrillers or something. Those, those like, parent-type movies Yeah. Um, for them. My parents feel the same way. But, uh, no sexy Richard like... Gere thrillers. I know. I'm, <laughs> I'm the same way. I want those movies, too. I'm like, or, like, a, you know, a good, you know, courtroom drama or something. It's a lot of superhero movies movies right now yes yes there are and the ilk and the same kind of ilk but uh uh okay so so you were a scaredy cat growing up you said uh, did, has that continued into adulthood did you yes. still get scared watching movies <laughs> oh more just like life more like oh. now, now obviously <laughs> i mean movies, fair. movies and, I, and i love horror movies but yes no more more life is the is the anxiety and going to a movie and sitting down and watching something and being scared is more the uh more the relief Okay, but um, yeah, I mean, in, in terms of favorites, I mean, those ones I mentioned, I still think of. I think of like Jaws, The Exorcist, and The Shining is like my holy trinity, or, or, and mm. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, maybe my holy, my holy quadruple, my holy trinity, um, as <laughs> as kind of my ultimate favorites. And then um, just because the movie I made has a has a certain home invasion element to it i call it a polite home invasion movie um there are certain movies everything from like i said straw dogs not really you know more of a, a, a dark thriller with straw dogs funny mm-hmm. games the strangers um mm-hmm. uh, it's kind of a, a little bit of a, not a home invasion movie but uh, kind of a trapped in a, in a house uh, the invitation obviously we wear that influence on our sleeve in the movie um those are some of my favorites uh, as well hell yeah what is the last time do you remember the last time you actually felt really scared at a movie as an adult, oh, well, that's a good. Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I watched. Uh, there are movies that I've had to l- almost look away. I mean, Possessor mm. with what do they do to Sean Bean's face? Was that with the, like, oh, the fire poker? Like... Uh huh. The fire poker yeah. in the teeth. Yeah. yeah. So that, I mean, uh, stuff like that. Uh, I don't know. I guess I wasn't scared, but I was certainly sitting up uh, <laughs> for that. Uh, same with uh, Tatane. If I'm Mm. I think I pronounced that correctly, uh, and and with Raw as well, and uh, and Saint Maud. That was another one when she puts the oh, puts the you know the nails in the shoes as a re- recovering Catholic. You know that one really uh, hit hit home for me a lot. I'm I'm going to see Barbarian tonight, so we will oh. see uh, how terrified I get. It's so Hopefully good. Very. I want to hear what you're. I'll see on Twitter if you tweet about it. But uh, oh, it's so exciting! It's, it's good, a good time. One. Or what, now I need to know when 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 was the last time you guys got uh, super terrified? I honestly I think the last time that like a movie really like scared me was Host from a couple okay. years ago. I can see the that Zoom yeah. horror film. So good that movie was so good. It really was. But the movies that pop up in my head immediately are Terrified and Hereditary. Both of those, right? Yeah, uh, Hereditary. Uh, yeah, Hereditary really scared me. I would, yeah. I would say that might even uh, yeah, Midsummer as well. That might yeah. be the last one. Um, Naroi the Curse is another one that really scared me relatively. It's a mm-hmm. Japanese found footage movie from 2005 that I saw relatively recently. And I think that one might be the one that has scared me most recently. Okay. Like, really scared me. It's a good yeah. one. I'm like, wait, have I ever seen a movie in my entire life? <laughs> <laughs> like, I know, and every but people on, on, uh, on, you know, on, like, just instantaneous, like, response, it's always like, ah, have I ever watched a movie? <laughs> Oh yeah, my mind goes blank. I mean, when mm-hmm. when, yeah. when we first started talking about this show, my mind did go to The Exorcist, and when I what, caught a little bit of it on like cable TV as a kid, just like a minute of it, I was so scared. 
my parents came home from dinner. I like confessed that I'd watched a little bit of The Exorcist, and I was like, and and I said something like, you know, but it's all made up. It's just a movie. Like I was like teeing them up to reassure me, uh-huh. and my dad's like, no. No, it's based on a true story. It happened. <laughs> He's like, and you believe in God, right? So, you know, God's real, the devil's real. And yeah, I was, I, I did not sleep well that night. Oh, ouch. That's mean. <laughs> so I had a lot of material for Scarred for, uh, scarred yeah, for Life. Yeah, it sounds like it. The other one that freaked me out recently, but it is, it was a, it's on Festival Run. It's called Skinamarink. Mm. Oh, I don't know um, that at all. It just it just premiered at Fantasia. It's a movie I watched. It's like very weird liminal space horror. It's so weird. It's so weird, but it like reminded me of very specifically weird moments in my childhood. So it like really fucked me up. And there's a part where they're whispering, are you asleep? And I was like getting really sleepy. And I just sat straight up and was like, not anymore. Um, so yeah, but that's not out yet. Um, but that's the one to keep on your radar because it's okay. it's weird. Skidamarink. Right. Yeah, I mean, very weird. I would, I would hope it's weird. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm adding that to my, my cue. But you talked about how you're scared. You're like you know you've been scared of horror. But what kind of draws you to the genre as an adult and into kind of work within the genre or at least genre adjacent? Um, sure. I mean, I talking about just movies that um, maybe that there aren't that type of movies that like for my parents to see but i also feel like um we're in such a unique time for cinema going that horror films have kind of been this great saving grace for movies um especially for moviegoers like me where it's like i want something that i feel like i'm compelled to go to the theater to see um that there's like an immediacy there that i'm not going to wait for it to be on vod or hbo max and i feel like horror has really found a way uh, just the just the the vibe of of uh, you know being in the theater, being scared with other people, um, gets me to the theater, and I love that. And I don't know oh, why, yeah. for some reason, comedy. Um, I don't, I'm a big comedy person. Comedy hasn't quite been that successful in that there aren't these like big comedy movies that are coming out that are thought of as uh, theater only or uh, type flicks. So there's that, and I also feel like I have a, a dark sense of humor. Um, I work mostly in comedy in in TV. Uh, and, uh, I often get the note that it's just too dark. And when I started writing horror a few years ago, I did not get that note anymore. And that was nope. really, really great. The, the darkness was welcomed and I love that. And, and I, I think I mentioned, yeah, I grew up very, fairly religious and there's just something about, uh, I mean, it's in all storytelling, but more so in, in horror, there's just something about, you know, the, the sin of the protagonist and, and how it uh, often uh, boomerangs back on them and paying for your sins that feels, um, I don't know, really classic and such a great part of storytelling. I feel like it's, it's more pronounced in horror than any other genre. Yeah. So you got your start. Um, you, you were a reporter. You worked for uh, Weekly World News, Rolling Stone, a bunch of these you know writing gigs. How did you get interested in um tv and producing and filmmaking um i, I was always uh, interested in tv and, and film just you know like most people just didn't really know how to go about it um i had uh luckily i'd, I'd gone to a college in upstate new york where they just started a screenwriting class oh. so i took a bunch of those classes and that was really great um we were just like cramming out screenplays really really fast terrible awful screenplays um yeah and and i i made a plan to move out to la and was a intern got an internship at a a studio out here um and and did that for a while and then got very did that just did the internship get very lucky i was in the right place at the right time 
for getting a, uh, uh, being an assistant on a TV show. I was an assistant on a show called Queer as Folk. I think there's a new one. Oh. I'm talking about the one from like 20 years ago, but not the British one. Um, the, the one with Hal Sparks. Yeah. Uh, so that was, I, I mean, you know, the, the turn of the century. Uh, and I had uh, not moved here uh, too long before. I didn't realize what a great gig this was, like what a great stepping stone gig it was. At that time, I didn't even really have a TV, uh, or at least it wasn't plugged in anything. I was just watching a lot of movies. So yeah, Queer as Folk was really great for me. And then I uh, did a lot of writing, not for the show, but was able to like carve out some writing time and meet people who could you know, help me out to get those first writing gigs. That's so cool. Where's Folk was such a important, uh, you know, television show for, for me as, as a, I, that was what, that was the turn of like around 2000 around yeah, that time. I think it was like 2001, two, 2001. It ran forever. I was, I think I was there for the two seasons. Um, yeah, but ran, ran many years and now they got the reboot. Oh, well, I'd yeah. love to hear that. That's great. Yeah. The That's reboot great. is really good too, by the way. I really hope it gets a second season. <laughs> is that on but, Showtime? Uh, um, no, that was on Peacock. Um, but yeah, that was that was a great gig. And then, and then uh, you know, met a met a uh, agent, and uh, you know, wrote. I, I got this big break writing a movie for for Universal Studios. I thought like I was so smart, and like everything was going my way, and like this was going to be you know it come out the next year with my name on it and be this big hit. And you know, I, they paid me for the movie, which was great, and that's how I got my insurance and all these different things. But yeah, mm -hmm. movie movie. As often as the case, the movie did not uh, did not go into production. That sucks when that happens. I mean, it, I mean, you got paid, you got like you know insurance. That's great, but yeah, it, yeah. It sucks I, that it never got made. I, I it happens more times than it doesn't. So uh, I don't know why. I just thought it wouldn't happen to me. I was like, no, no, they're going to read this movie and they're going to be so blown away, so blown away by it. <laughs> so we often like a lot of directors we talk to have come from a comedy background, but I love hearing about it and how. If you see such a like, if you see a similarity between comedy and horror, because you know we talk a lot about how they are so similar, so I'm curious about your perspective since you've worked in both spheres and kind of how you see the connection between the two. Yeah, I, I just think there's something about uh, the comedy I like. There's a there's a lot of uh, you know tension in it, and uh, that feels like always that tension and that relief is where is where the laugh is uh those uncomfortable situations that are relatable mm -hmm. and that really to to me feels you know very much like uh horror or at least in the in the setup of a of a good horror film so yeah a couple of years ago i made a, a short film and i was i want want to be about this uh you know this guy who who can't catch a mouse in his house and his, his wife is like very upset that like can't you do anything right he's like out of a job anyway he hires an exterminator who emasculates him and also kind of like he's, he's like also kind of scared of her anyway the, the i kept writing these different drafts of it and as a comedy it was it was fun but then we kind of it kind of turned into a, a little bit of a a short horror film and once i made the decision to you know get a little blood in there and just go for it <laughs> Uh, I think it just made it such a more interesting story, and I just I just loved it. So that was that was a couple of years ago, and um, yeah. And once you start killing people in your scripts, it's kind of hard to go back. The, the, there you the, go. The stakes feel very low. Otherwise, yeah. <laughs> so speaking about kind of adding blood to it in horror, uh, you have a your debut feature is now on Shutter. Uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit about who invited them? Yeah, uh, who invited them uh, came out of the idea of. Uh, you know, I, I, I love a good party, uh, especially feels like post-COVID parties can be a little uh, little fraught uh, for many reasons. Well, not post-COVID, I guess, wherever we are in COVID. 
Um, mm. But but it, I just I just love this idea. Like I said, I love home invasion movies. Home invasions are the scariest thing to me because they happen. You can get on all the time. You can get on next door or what you know, Citizen or whatever your weird app is, and find out where the home invasions were. You know, last night at least in L.A. I keep a, a, a very worn copy of Helter Skelter on my uh, uh, bedside table just to remind myself to lock my doors at night. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so home, home invasions are really terrifying to me. And, I, and, and basically, I love the idea of someone having a party, uh, which is, you know, basically you're opening your house to your friends, but there could also be strangers as well. You don't know who's going to come in. So I love this idea of, uh, of, of some, some mysterious people uh, infiltrating a party. And that's kind of our setup to the movie when our, our main characters uh, realize that at this little housewarming party, they do not recognize two of the guests. And even without like not recognizing the guests, your movie had me on edge because I'm an introvert. And the one thing I hate is when a party is over and no one is leaving. It's like, okay, I'm ready for you to go home now. Oh, yeah. So even before like there's that the idea that, you know, they're not, you no know, one knows who they are. It's just like, this is like my nightmare and they just want to keep partying. And I'm like, no, I, I would want to go to bed at this point. <laughs> it, it is the worst. I know I've, I've been both people. Now I'm usually the person who's like, get out. Um, but yeah, a friend of mine watched it and was like, oh, this is like a horror movie about your social anxiety, uh, which it, it very much it very much is. Um, yeah, parties are, I mean, so, so, so fraught, such social minefields um that it felt like it was it was fertile territory for for a horror movie yeah i know that when i go to when i go to a party i almost said when i go to a horror movie when i go to a party i will go i will latch onto my friend that i'm with and i will not leave the side because it's like i i get so anxious around new people i don't know and so like this whole movie just just had me on edge why i just need my exit plan i mean i've I've literally gone mm -hmm. to parties where i've walked in grabbed a cookie and, uh, and, a, and a quick beer and like walked out the other side and then just to my car. I'm just like, nope, not feeling it. Just like, like, <laughs> literally, like two minutes, yep. like in the front door, back door, and I'm in my car. Yep. We went to a wedding this weekend and we were like, what's our exit strategy? It's not that we didn't want to be there. It was just like, I don't, I'm tired. <laughs> I don't want to be out late. <laughs> but you kind of talked a little bit about the home invasion of influences on it. And they, you know, they have the iconic home invasion movies that we all know about, but were there any like particular films that really stood out in your head that served as kind of influences or kind of guiding lights in a way of what you wanted to accomplish with who invited them? Um, sure. I mean, like, like I said, the invitation was, was certainly one um, in terms of when I saw that movie, I just, you know, I, I, I recognized that that situation those people were in even before it got, you know, uh, culty. Um, and I, and I also thought watching, I was like, oh, I, there seems to be a, a way to do this that's with, with laughs. And I really liked that idea. So it, it, there was, you know, the imitation with laughs was often something we would invoke. Um, there are movies outside the horror range that are just these kind of like, all night, uh, knockdown, drag out family dramas that uh, I mm. really love that are almost like plays that felt like with some uh, a vibe we wanted to replicate, and that's everything from like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf to uh, the the celebration um, for sure uh, is a is a big one, which is it's you know it's not a horror movie, but uh, I, I don't know I don't know of a movie that's more horrific than the the celebration, which I really really love. Um, I'm not familiar with that one. Oh, you love that one. That's that's a '90s dogma movie. 
not not Lars von Trier, but the other big dogma guy about a, uh, oh, yeah, yes. a, 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 a big, big family dinner that goes uh, terribly, terribly long. Lots, lots of, I love rich people behaving badly and being exposed. It's fucked up. <laughs> it's really, fu- I had to watch it in college in a film class and I was like, oh, I don't like having to watch this with a large group of people. <laughs> yeah. And then there's just, you know, just any, I, I just love any type of movies where, uh, you know, it's it's uh, couples being infiltrated by some kind of, you know, stranger, and and so much of the movie is a slow burn of like, what is this person's game, and 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 there's so much, uh, you know, uh, politeness going on that has to drop away before you really get into, uh, you know, what's going on in the movie, and it's so any anything from like I'm thinking of like The Gift to all those great like movies like you know single white female and mm-hmm. um, oh god there's so many there's a couple of good ones with with kurt russell from the 90s that i'm i'm forgetting you know i love i like couples love tested by uh uh you know stranger yep. off, from off the beaten path that's almost its own like subgenre yeah and, and funny games certainly was, yep, was one yeah. as well and then there's a, there's a movie i love i saw on the criterion channel um uh the honeymoon killers that's based on a true story from the late sixties. And that, that just is, is, it's so terrifying. It's almost like a documentary, um, about this very, very unusual, uh, couple of killers. Ooh. Oh, oh, wow. Yeah. 19- wow. Okay. I'm, I'm adding these to like my, my watch list. Um, but so the thing that like jumped out of me as well about this, and I, I, I can kind of maybe see a little bit of the Henneke maybe reference is the kind of politeness aspect of it about like the kind of comedy of politeness where these two are here and they're like you know the the husband and the wife obviously want them to go and want them to to stop but then they keep like reeling them in and it's that idea that kind of tension between wanting to not to be a polite host especially if they're your neighbors and and not wanting to and i i I love that kind of awkward comedy of politeness i guess is is what I would describe it as. Yeah, I, I I like that too, and and I mean obviously, and and obviously, and honestly, feel like I am that you know person. I mean, you're all your characters, but certainly Adam is. Uh, uh, you know, I've, I've talked to some people, and they're like, "Does did Ryan Hansen know you from before? Is he like doing you?" And I was like, "No, no, he, he literally just met me a couple of days before, and uh, it's just you know the the way that character is written, and he's such a um, he's such a great actor that he, he's, he's just able to pick up on 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 that character's rhythm so quickly. But but that kind of like comedy of politeness, and also. You know, Adam and, and Margot, um, Adam uh, even more so, is, you know, kind of wants something out of Tom mm-hmm. and Sasha. So I, I think it's really fun to see characters um, kind of get put through the, the, the ringer a little bit. Um, and it's, it's, it's uh, you know, they're kind of hoisting themselves on their own petard, as they say, in terms of, uh, of, of, uh, of their, the, the hubris of, of, of wanting something. And, and, uh, and Tom and Sasha kind of, you know, put them through the paces for that. So I, I like that type of uh, societal manners stuff as well. Um, comedy of menace is another term. I, I would like to say I made that up. Yes. I saw it. it refers I like to like that. British hard edge, like British, uh, I think, uh, comedies in the 60s. I love Ooh, that. I love it. Also, I'd love Melissa Tang as Margot. So she was great. so good. Oh my god. I, her character just like had me laughing just at the the sides that the asides that she would say. Just uh what a good what a good quart, uh, quartet of a cast. Like I mean, they obviously have to carry the movie, but they they all do such a good job and and Timothy, I loved him. I remember seeing him in um 13 Reasons Why, I believe he was yep. in. Yeah, just just so good. Yeah. And, and, uh, yeah, M- Melissa is, is amazing and her character feels so real and she had to do so much 
you know, so many, so many crazy things in that movie. Her, her character might have the kind of most, um, uh, kind of the biggest journey in terms of, of changes. And, uh, and, and Timothy Granderos and Perry Matfeld had to come in and, it's a tall order playing these characters that have to be really charming because Adam and Margot aren't like total wet blankets. They're pretty, you know, they're pretty right. cool. They're pretty charming. Um, so they have to be charming, but not in a smarmy way and impress this couple that they literally just met in a way that doesn't feel like forced or, mm-hmm. or, or icky or because Adam and Margot's uh, uh, antennas would go up. So they, they have to be, they've got to be really cool. It's hard. It's, you know, you can't really direct someone to be like, Hey, be cool. Um, <laughs> right. you know, they, they kind of have to have some of that element. And a lot of people who watch the movie have, have, um, have asked if the actors knew each other before and they did not know each other. They were, they were all cast. This was, this wow. was a very as scrappy and indie as, as can be. And so they, they came in just a couple days before for the costume fitting and a zoom read and we were off to the races and they just, uh, uh, nailed it. So I feel very, very fortunate. That's wild because they do feel, they all feel like they know each other, like that they, there's yeah. like a shared history there. So that's, they do. That's yeah, they're all on a text Acting. chain. I, I want to be on the text oh. chain too. I'm not, uh, <laughs> it's, more, it's more like social stuff, I guess. It's you know, maybe someday. One day. Well, Duncan, we've talked about your horror history and some of your creative projects, but what movie have you brought with you today for us to discuss? All right. All right. (laughs) I brought a little movie. You may have heard of it called Dressed to Kill. Dressed to Kill. So this uh, Brian De Palma film is about the following. (laughs) Thank you again uh, ahead of time to IMDb for this uh, very reductive plot synopsis. Um, a mysterious blonde woman kills one of her psychi- one of a psychiatrist's patients, and then goes after the high class call girl who witnesses the murder. I love that IMDb just sort of like gives out the first act twist in a sentence as the plot synopsis for this movie. But um, great. It's but incredible. it is so much more. It is so, it is much, so much more. So much more than that. <laughs> but take us back to the beginning. Tell us your scar for life story. How old were you? How did you see this? I, I, I want to know your horror story with this so I, one. I'm, just by the house we were living in, I think I was under 10. So maybe I was 9 or 10. Uh, like I said, I was going to the video store renting movies, but in a religious household, like I knew what I could get away with. Mm. You know, sure, I could get away with like an R. Maybe I could get away with an R if it was like, you know, a cop movie or something, like ah. a French Connection or, you know, something. But it was it was all about uh, if it was going to be a, uh, an R with a sexy video box, forget <laughs> it. Forget it. So I had seen Dress to Kill. I, I, I was intrigued. I was also a little scared. The cover is a little scary. It's like that... Uh, I don't know if you call it an animation or painting, and you can see the someone someone speaking through the door at the sexy yep. sexy leg that's the sexy uh, protruding. Leg. <laughs> uh, anyway, I don't know who rented it. I don't know if it was my parents or my brothers, but at one point, that and a couple other movies were sitting on top of the TV. The parents were out, and I was like, "Holy cow! Dressed to Kill is here!" And I couldn't <laughs> pop that in faster. And I both enjoyed, but was also super terrified by, and there were kind of two, two sequences that really stood out and also a little bit confused, uh, the whole, the whole rainbow of emotions, uh, from, from watching Dress to Kill, uh, that, uh, you know, I, I stayed away from it for many years, got back into it when I got more into De Palma, uh, you know, in my 
later teens. But uh, yeah, it was it was a heavy one. It was a heavy one to pop in as a kid. So what were the the scenes you mentioned too in particular yeah. that that kind of jumped out at you and and that you remember terrifying you? So there's a there's an amazing beautiful sequence of of uh, our main character, our main character for a while at least the the Angie Dickinson character uh, going to a museum. She's mm. and, and meeting this you know kind of handsome but like anonymous man who has no lines and you don't really get a good look at his face and 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 there's these these, these beautiful shots of her kind of track tracking him through the museum basically a mid-afternoon pickup and they fall into this cab and they're making out and they're doing the deed and she's having an orgasm in the cab they go back to his place as you do. You know, so all of this is blowing my mind already. Uh-huh. I mean, just the the opening <laughs> with Nakey Angie Dickinson with the the body double, and I was like, oh boy, this is this is forbidden on every level for me. Uh-huh. So I'm, I'm I'm very teed up and very nervous already. Anyway, after this one night stand, she goes to write this uh, the one night stand a little note. She opens a drawer, writes the note, and is about to put the note back in, and she sees a uh, formal a form letter from the city of New York Health Department uh, that this man has a syphilis and gonorrhea. Yep. And I, I mean, maybe I knew what syphilis was at the time. I don't know if I knew what gonorrhea was. Either way, I knew this was not good. So that was that was scary. I was like, what? what? And it also kind of fed into the Catholic upbringing. Like, hold it. This woman has sex. Now she's got like a, she, she, she's going to die? Like, what's happening? And then she runs out of the apartment and then uh, she's in an elevator. And that's when she is attacked uh, with a razor blade by a mysterious person wearing sunglasses and a wig you don't or you don't know if it's a wig you don't know what's <laughs> going on uh and 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 their face is is kind of blurred from her point of view you don't know if it's a man or a woman or what is happening and uh and her beautiful white outfit is like all bloodied up and it's terrifying it's terrifying i mean it was all there you had the the sex the terrible news and then then you're dead so that was terrifying, and I won't go on as, as long, but, but then there's a sequence towards the end where Michael Caine's character is in an insane asylum, and he, uh, uh, the nurse is, I don't know what, she giving him some water or something, he reaches up, strangles her, and cho- chokes her out, chokes her to death, and then the camera tilts up and you see all the other uh, uh, asylum residents, all the crazies, looking down on him. It's almost this, like, I don't know, uh, Roman, uh, like a Coliseum, like, like a Coliseum. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're like, you're like, hold it. Where they? they're all looking down and they're, they're cheering and jeering. And it's all kind of in a blue tint that really freaked me out. That was, that was really terrifying. So those, those definitely stuck with me. And, uh, of course I had to keep the fact that I watched dress to kill secret. <laughs> so I, not that my dad was going to be reassuring me after that exorcist story, but, um, <laughs> right. you know, it was it was my secret shame for a while. I can't imagine seeing wow. this at that age. I really can't. Like no. that's because there's, there's a lot going on in this film that um, I would not have been able to process at that age. Yeah, I, I don't remember what I came away with in terms of I think the the scariness and the shame and all that kind of overpowered a uh, a more nuanced critique of the movie. <laughs> I you know I feel like I recognized Michael Caine from some other stuff. Maybe I had seen him in Jaws three at that point. I'm not sure, but but Michael Caine's so cold in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I actually don't think it's like one of his best performances he's he doesn't really he's not really giving you much um and also just the the fact that the movie which is you know riffs on the on very much on psycho yeah. where janet lee gets you know off in the first third 
I don't think I'd seen Psycho at this point, so I wasn't wasn't familiar with the homage factor. So the fact that like Angie Dickinson, I think I kind of knew, like she was on Police Woman, and and you know she's all of a sudden she's like has sex. Do moms have sex in the middle of the afternoon? And then she's dead, and I'm like, now who are we following? A, you know, a prostitute and this kid. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a real uh, intense uh, head twister. Yeah, I, I was curious about about that because like um, I I saw this we saw we both saw this for the first time was it last year because we were doing erotic thrillers and we covered yeah. this on on our little cuts or minisode and so we we watched this and it was the first time i had ever seen it and i was i was of course struck by the psychoness of it all because it's it definitely has that so the plot structure where we're following a character she ends up dying and then we end up following someone else and i i'm like it's it's such a especially if you if you have no uh you know, frame of reference for Psycho. It's I, I can imagine this would be like an audacious first act. It's do you remember that like really surprising you? I, I do remember. I mean that that whole museum sequence uh, with no dialogue. I mean is 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 so dreamlike and so mm. disturbing. And uh, yeah, I, I I remember that. Yeah, being the real the real standout. It's funny as a, I I then I you know rewatched years and years later. But the whole middle of the movie was totally, I didn't remember anything from that. It was, it was really, you know, the, it's, it's the whole Angie Dickinson 40 minutes and then that yeah. really creepy, um, Kane, uh, Kane nurse murder towards the end that, uh, stood out. I forgot actually about a lot of the Angie Dickinson stuff for some reason. Like, and I saw this so recently and for some reason, like, I knew there was like the museum sequence, but I forgot that it's like a good half of the movie where you're following her and it feels like almost like, a melodramatic look into a sad, sexually repressed woman's life and her attempts to find empowerment through sex and like all this stuff. And then it's like, psych. And then it just like absolutely is just like, surprise, actually, this is much different. And I love, I-, I love that because God, the beginning of this movie is one of my favorites where it's just like this really so seductive, good. sexy, but almost kind of sad moment where she's like, Washing herself and moaning and looking at her husband, I think, looking at her husband who's standing Mm -hmm. at the sink. And it's like, it's like the beginning of Carrie. Mm -hmm. Which came first? Carrie. Carrie, okay. Like, which is very interesting because in Carrie, it's like, oh, she's a teenager. She's getting her period. And here it's like much more sexual. And it's like, look at her entire body and this moaning of longing. And then the guy like comes in behind her. And you're just like, holy shit, wait, what is going on? And then it, it then I think it cuts to her having so sex with her husband. It's so weird. They're like, is it a dream sequence? Like, is it what is going on here? And it's just like a wild way to start the movie. And it catches you, it really kind of disarms you and kind of like throws you off kilter, even in like the first couple of minutes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I don't remember exactly my reaction as a kid to that opening, but I'm sure it was uh, both excited and absolutely out of my gourd, terrified. Because like, um, even just watching it Uh-oh. last night, I'm like, what? <laughs> the guy coming up behind her, you're like, oh, so is this? I mean, she's even punished in her fantasies yeah. um, in this movie. And then, and then, yeah, that really disturbing uh, marital, marital sex. Um, when he pats her on the head! <sighs> so dark. So dark. Poor Angie Dickinson. Yeah, she's she's fantastic in this in this early first forty minute ish sequence. But what what's what I like keyed in on on this watch in particular is how she's not really appreciated by any of the men in her household. Like her son is like she wants to get her son to go to the museum, and of course, if the son had gone with her to the museum, things would have turned out a whole lot different than they did. But you know, 
he's like too wrapped up in his his science and creating the the kind of computer binary what i don't I don't really know what it is. I guess it's a computer. <laughs> uh, no, no, I loved it. It was so it, 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 it almost felt like a Spielberg movie in some of those moments with Keith Gordon where he's like the nerd. It, get, it gets kind of like goonish and very light, mm-hmm. which I liked. Um, yeah, I, I was not sure what his uh, his yeah. assignment was. <laughs> but he, but she like is having unfulfilling sex with her husband who, like Mary Beth, you said, pats her on the head as he like rolls off and goes to take a shower. His, her son is like ignoring her and wants to just work on his computer stuff. And so the, it's this woman in this household where she's really not appreciated. And we kind of follow that sort of repression because she talks to her, to the psychiatrist, Michael Caine, played by Michael Caine. And, you know, she, he's like, well, have you told them, you know, that you're unhappy with them? And she's like, no, because I think it, there's like that kind of interesting interplay of like what she thinks she's supposed to do and how mm. she thinks life is supposed to be as opposed to like what it could be and what it should be for her. And so there's that I, I just I found it so interesting to watch like this, this woman trying to finally discover herself and discover, you know, maybe what she's looking for. And then of course gets cut short. Right. No, you really, you really feel for her. I know it's, she's like getting her groove on mm-hmm. and, um, yeah, cut short. Nobody gets no, not, not a lot of uh, pleasure goes unpunished in this movie for sure. Yeah. I was talking to Terry about that <laughs> and we'll probably talk more about it, but I was like, Brian De Palma and his treatment of female characters. Hmm. Interesting. Because, I mean, I like, Brian De Palma. I like Brian De Palma a lot. It's just, like, in this movie, it's very fascinating, like, gender politics for a lot of reasons. And, again, we'll get into that later, especially with Michael Caine's character. But the gender politics here are fascinating with this, like, changing of perspectives of women and how this, this what this Angie Dickinson's character at the beginning is treated and how that transition, like, it's how she did transitions to um, Liz's character. And I'm just so fascinated with how he treats female characters, especially in this film in particular. I, I really love the, um, uh, the De Palma uh, documentary. I don't know if, if you guys have seen that. It's really, Ooh. it's really good. Um, it maybe came out five years ago and Noah Baumbach, uh, co-directed it, but there's a whole sequence in it about how in, uh, in this movie, uh, the Keith Gordon character is very much a, a Brian De Palma, uh, avatar because Brian De Palma, had some experience as a kid where he um, he was spying on his dad. His dad was having an affair, so oh. he knew about that. So all this stuff about Keith Gordon spying with the gadgets. Um, there's a, there's a, a, huh. a, little, a a lot of uh, a lot of real life in that, which I thought was really interesting. And then he had to deal with the guilt of knowing about the, the affair, I think, and there was a lot there. So there's a lot going on with uh, with Brian. Wow. I mean, I, I always think of this blowout and. Um, Oh God! Body Double is kind of like a, a trilogy, trilogy a little bit. I think probably Blowout's my my favorite, and it's it's funny this this movie and uh, Body Double both have you know kind of some 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 bigger cultural issues. But yeah, all, yeah. all three really really amazing movies. Well, I do think with the the aspect of gender and and sexuality in this, I do think it kind of complicates things a bit when we switch to Liz because unlike Kate, Liz is a lot more sexually adventurous. You know, she is a sex worker who also is doing stock sales. And I, there's a f- really cr- great scene where she is like on the phone trying to set up like, uh, yeah. you know, a, an appointment uh, as a sex worker. And then she's also trying to, you know, buy stock. And so she's like going back and forth trying to figure out how much money she needs and so how much. So like she's 
she's a lot more interesting and a lot more, um, I, I would, you know, I, th- I think this movie kind of deals a little bit with repression, <laughs> a lot with repression and she is not. And so while she's looked down upon by like the cops and there's that kind of, you know, push and pull with, with her, her career field, as well as kind of the, the male perspective of that. I think that the fact that she is a successful businesswoman kind of complicates the look of gender in this in a way. Yeah. I, I, I take back what I said about, um, yeah, all, all forms of uh, pleasure in the movie are punished because that's not really true with her. Yeah. She is. So she's so winning in this movie is that I wanted to say Karen Allen for a second, but I'll remember the actress's name. And uh, Nancy, I think that's Allen? Pop- Nancy, Nancy Allen. Nancy Allen. Yes. Yes. Um, she's so good. I just watched Cruise in the other day. So I was thinking, um, yeah. And I think that's De Palma's girlfriend at the time or maybe wife. Um, oh, was it? Yes, oh, that makes a lot great. of sense. That she's been in a number of his movies, I know. Yeah, she's huh. she's really she's really good. I mean, I guess she is punished in the end. She's got those that terrible nightmare, um, but but she is out there living living her best life. Well, um, sorry, my cat is trying to get out. Well, be, I, have you either of you seen John Dielman? That three hour long Chantel Ackerman movie. Oh, I have not. I have not. Oh, so it's a really incredible, it's like, it's like three and a half hours long, and it's about a woman who is dealing with repression, and the first half of this movie very much reminds me of that, but with more se- like more explicit sex and violence, because it's very much about a woman who's trying to live out her daily life, and it culminates in, like, and it, something happens at the end after, like, these three hours of her being treated like shit by all the men in her life, and then something snaps. So... This reminds me of that in that she is very much trying to live her kind of daily life. And I want to go back to the the museum sequence because that is like my favorite part of this entire movie. It's so good. It's so beautifully shot. It's, like you said, Duncan, no dialogue. And there is this emphasis on the sound of shoes hitting the floor. Like there's there's a score Mm. underneath of it. But the sound design is having me focus so closely on the sound of feet. And her, like, her feet versus his, and who's, like, who's walking in front of who, and kind of, like, what's going on with, like, is it a cat and mouse game, this chase, and it's just the way it's cut and shot, it's so, it's like a chase sequence, almost, Mm -hmm. but then it culminates, not how do you expect, in, like, this moment of, of her finally achieving sexual pleasure in the back of a taxi cab, and it's just such an, it's, so thrilling in a way that I would never would have thought and also like kind of subverts expectations on how it ends. And I just absolutely love how he films and like the way he's cutting, like intercutting between her looking at people like in kids and a couple looking at art to her writing in her planner, like very basic stuff. And it escalates to this moment, like this really stressful tense moment that only her and this guy are privy to. Like, everyone around her doesn't really know what's going on. So there's something really fascinating about that tension and the relationships going on here, even though they're, so, they're very, like, tenuous. I just think it's so cool. It's, it's, it's so good. It's like a, a movie within a movie. I mean, just the little moments yeah. of, like, when she has to have flashbacks to, like, 30 seconds before, you know, where she's like, hold it, he touched me with the glove. Where's my glove? And you see the glove, and you're like, oh, wow, yeah, I guess there's really no way to get that across in an expression and it just kind of works because then they do it three times and it and it, it it's it's really yeah it really is a a master class um i love it and i, I really love the whole subway too I, i've forgotten mm. that, that there's a, the, that great subway uh uh moment in chase yeah um so bef- before we do move on to, i just wanted to say mary beth we, when you when you were talking about how you know there's like 
it almost like a chase sequence in my notes that for this watch i was like this feels like a, a mini slasher film except you're not quite sure yeah. is it supposed to be titillating is it supposed to be like is there implied violence here is because you're, you're waiting especially if you've never seen this movie before you're waiting for some like you know killer moment and so i was like is is this the killer when i first saw this for the first time i was i was like okay so what is going on here and it's like a 10 minute sequence and it's something that i don't think you would actually see in movies today i don't think anyone would ever do this but it's such a, a brilliant moment that i think is probably the most standout moment of this of this film and it's just it's so it's so simple in like execution and yet or like in, in premise but the execution of it is just so it's just it's so thrilling it's so thrilling to watch yeah there's so much going on and and it is it's very very tense i mean even having seen the movie before when i was watching it last night i was like oh my god i'm like on on the edge of my seat for what is this mm-hmm. you know w- w- character that i i I'm, I, I just met and like and a a, a museum like dalian's kind of like romance pickup but but you know you you don't know what's going to happen there's something very i found something very threatening about the guy she's mm-hmm. she's chasing after the way he's shot and with his glasses and he's he's you can't read his expression he's so like purposefully expressionless um, that I feel like that's part of it too. You, you feel like this guy could snap at any second or, you know, could be pulling her in the taxi cab to strangle her. Right. Well, and I and I also love that this allows uh, De Palma to do the things that he loves to do with split diopters. We get some split diopters in this sequence and we get split screens. We get all that kind of stuff. And it's just like, it's like such a technically beautiful sequence that I, yeah, you're absolutely right. And I, I was thinking about this in uh, when I was rewatching this, where like there's the sequence where she looks back at him and he's not paying attention to her. And then like he's looking and then she looks back and he's gone. And it's like this this moment of like, oh, where did he go? And this moment of it, again, it's like sex and violence. There's that kind of thin line there where you're not quite sure how this is going to to end and then there's the environmental storytelling because i i love the when you know she drops the glove and the camera swoops down and focuses on the glove and then later on he picks up the glove and he's grabbing her shoulder with the glove and so there's like all these little tiny details that convey so much without saying a single word and it's just i don't know it's such a it's such it's my favorite part of the movie yeah no no me too and 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 just the element where he's he you know he puts his hand on her shoulder with the glove and how she misconstrues that as something mm-hmm. potentially dangerous, but of course it could be dangerous. You know, it's it's, right. it's they, they keep having these little their little cat and mouse games, just these mm-hmm. little little cues that they're sending back and forth that get misconstrued, and 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 what a dance it is, and how how like yeah, like you said, like the, the sex and violence of of the whole uh, operation is 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 so like uh, you know different sides of the same same coin. Like one wrong move in this pickup, and she could be. She could end up uh, up up dead. Um, well, what she does, but in a way that we never would have anticipated right, from exactly. from, uh, from what was uh, starting in the museum. Yeah, when he sat down. I also think it's so audacious that they're having sex in the backseat of a cab. Like, does this really happen in real life? It was another like... time, nineteen eighty. <laughs> and that taxi driver was getting into it too. He, he was he watching. Was. He was just vibing, I guess. <laughs> oh yeah, he, he remembers everything to tell the cop later. He, he, he sure does. He, oh yeah, let me let me sit down, and I'm sure that cop. I love Dennis Franz's uh, uh, wardrobe in this movie. Just like he looks like he's going to a disco, but he's a cop. It's so great. He's so sleazy. He's so sleazy. <laughs> but okay, then you also talked about the the other actual kind of chase sequence in the subway, and that 
is constructed again, kind of similar. And where you know she look, there's that one sequence where she's being chased by the punks on the side, and she gets a cop, and they look one direction. And we get to see the reverse where the, you know, the killer hops on the, the train. So we mm-hmm. missed that. So she misses that. And then they look the other way. And that's, of course, when, when the punks get on the, on the train. And so we have that kind of inversion of people missing the little tells, just like in the, in the, in the museum sequence where, mm-hmm. you know, they keep missing each other and, and missing intention where she and the cop keep missing that these threatening forces are getting on the train on, on opposite ends and she's stuck in the middle. And it's such, Again, split diopters, we get all that kind of fun stuff. It's such a exquisitely shot sequence. It's it's so great that but when she's in the subway and she's looking at the subway car and she's looking at the cop, you know, are you going to protect me? And he's kind of giving her the cynical look. And mm-hmm. then the camera does, I guess it would be like, it's almost like this 360 pan, you know, around the car. And that's when you see Michael Caine in the window, but the lights are going off <laughs> on and off in the subway car. I mean, there's nothing. There's nothing scarier to me than 70s, 1970s uh, New York subways. I mean, I nothing <laughs> nothing good happens there. No. And I, I also, we talked a little bit about like the split screen aspect. And I wanted to talk about a moment um, that I really was kind of both creepy and also introduces an aspect of the film. I think the aspect of the film that we need to talk about in terms of like the transness representation. So... Thinking about the moment, you talked about this, Terry, where Liz is on the phone doing her stock portfolio, and then it's a split screen, and then Michael Caine's character is listening to a voicemail from his pa- from a patient who is saying that he is a woman in a man's body, and that he um, he's basically very angry that his psychiatrist would not give him like, kind of like medical sign off to receive. Uh, surgery to transition and so this person is now leaving rather unhinged voicemails about how they killed a woman and they used his razor to get him in trouble and so michael kane's listening to this like rather unhinged voicemail which is like talking underneath liz talking and it's got this like black almost black christmas vibe a little bit to it Mm. but like that kind of sinister voicemail phone call and then we go to Transitioning to the two of them watching um, a talk show with Nancy Hunt, Nancy Hunt, who is a transgender woman, and she is talking on television about being trans. And they are both watching the ends of they're both watching her talk on different, like in different parts of New York City. But it's such an interesting. The obviously introduction into the the like not the introduction, but kind of moving even more into the, this aspect of trans identity. And this film obviously does not handle trans identity well at all, which we will talk about. But it's so interesting how in the split screen moment, they have the two of them watching it. And it really does make us feel like a spectacle, like the spectacle mm. of rejecting heteronormativity, especially in the 80s. And this person who is like, fascinating, like, oh, my God, they a, a man transitioned to a woman, like, I don't understand. And they're like, interrogating her about her sexual past and her marriages. And it's, she's very, like, joyful and responding, but it gets this like, kind of spe- making a spectacle out of someone who is not cis. And again, back then, it was it was taken as a spectacle, because people didn't really know much about trans identity. And it's just very interesting way to kind of really start introducing even further these concepts that this movie is playing with, even if it's incredibly 
harmful and how it is handling these subjects. Yeah. Um, so the Nancy, Nancy Hunt, it, also an interesting person, real life person. Um, and that was, uh, that I believe that talk show was the, was the Donahue, Donahue show, um, that they were watching when Na- Nancy worked for, um, Nancy served in the U S army and was in during world war two was in the air force during the Korean war, um, worked for Chicago daily news, joined the tribune was like a wartime reporter covering Vietnam war as a combat correspondent. Um, and then transitioned to Nancy Hunt. It's she, she wrote a book. What was it called? Mirror image, which was a detailed account of the sex change operation that she went through. And so there's that aspect of it that I think is, is such an interesting little segment in this movie mm-hmm. where I, there is like, I don't know. There's an, I feel like there is at least an attempt from a 1980s perspective in trying to understand, um, trans identity, but it's not handled very well at all in, in the rest of the movie. But that, that segment I thought was really interesting. And I loved that Nancy says, what was the quote? I've always been a devout heterosexual. And I just, I love that that moment is in this movie because it's just, I don't know. It, it, it feels, it feels real. And it's surprising back in 1980s that we had um, someone being able to talk about that, even if it was on something, I don't really know Donahue's show. I think it was sort of like a, was it sort of like tabloid ish sort of, but I, I don't really know it was, exactly. It was kind of like the, the first one pre pretty groundbreaking. I think it was a, a, a step up. And then the, the copycat shows after that were a little more tabloidy, but it, okay. you know, it definitely pushed buttons. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like he tried to, you know, he tried to uh, be, be fair and, Fair and balanced in a non-Fox News way. Yeah, right. Fox News has ruined that phrase for everyone. So. They sure yeah. have. <laughs> no, I, 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 I thought that was a really interesting part of the movie too. And, and obviously, since we're you know this is the show is scarred for life, there was there was you know all this was kind of lost on me in in, mm-hmm. in the childhood uh, childhood viewing. I don't know. It, it it almost seems kind of baked in to the premise of this movie that it's just not going to uh it's just not going to be a, a fair uh trans depiction and 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 I feel like it's uh yeah it's 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 a it's a hard one it's a hard one I feel like that's why the Michael Caine character doesn't really feel when I said he's not good good performance because it's not really it's an idea it's not a it's not a real character uh that yeah. he's playing and I, I I did read about that you know at the time even though this is 1980 there were you know this was met with a lot of controversy a lot of protests mm-hmm. uh same with uh for different reasons but same with uh body double a couple of years later yeah yeah so there are um I cuz you know it's it's hard to talk about a movie that that deals with trans identity when we're all you know cis people but I did find a couple of writings um that kind of tackle it in different ways and, and listeners, we're going to include links to these in the show notes, but the, there's one that really jumped out to me was, was posted from on the crooked marquee by Jessica Kretz, who is a, a trans woman. And she says that she's always struggled with this film. Um, but she says that over the years, a different portrait of the trans killer Bobby began to emerge. Each new viewing led me to believe there's more empathy towards her than other critical readings have suggested. Mm. And so she kind of, digs into back in the 1960s and 70s it was harder for trans people to be able to transition in america there was the harry benjamin international gender dysphoria association and um they were talking about how clinicians use the term transsexual 
and they were thought to be a person with a characteristic path of atypical gender identity. And they, they go through the, the different ways that they have to be medically seen in order for them to even request gender re- gender affirmation surgery. Yes. And so there, this, this article kind of digs into to that and about how like, there's like a whole lot of pressure in order to be able to even transition. And it, it's a really interesting article and we'll include in the show notes. But so that's from, from a trans writer that, that kind of has like a, a more positive spin on this, but there mm-hmm. are, there's a lot of writings um, about this. And there's one in particular that I really, I really liked where, well, there's two, one from Alice Stower, a trans woman film critic who says that Elliot's pathology bears minimal resemblance to the experiences of an actual trans woman. Instead, it reads as a conflation of trans identity with a disassociative identity disorder. At its most hostile, Dressed to Kill suggests that trans women are dangerous, unstable, and confused. And they, she says that whereas in Carrie, De Palmer found truth by telling the monster story, here the monster is incomprehensible and alien. Mm. This strikes me as damaging. And so there's that aspect of it. And then someone else was talking about how the the problem is is that when they hear someone is trans, they have a list of characters that are lumped into this general category of women in quotations, women who are really men, and that category is filled with psychopaths and serial killers. So I think that there's like, it's really hard to for um, people to really kind of appreciate this movie for for a fantastic movie that it is when there's that kind of damaging trans trope that we see in sleepaway camp that was released around the same time. And then also, you know, psycho beforehand, psycho beforehand. And then a decade later with a uh, silence of the lambs. So there's like, there's that aspect of it that kind of complicates this movie in an unfortunate ways. Yeah. And this movie, but you know, paying uh, homage, as I said, like kind of baked into the premise, paying homage to, to psycho a movie that right. has its own, problematic in in its own way it's and it's interesting that it's like because we have the nancy hut inclusion and then there's like the part at the end where they're talking rather loudly at like a restaurant about gender affirmation surgery and the idea of being trans and it's like it almost feels like maybe De Palma thinks he's doing something that's like more progressive when it's obviously very harmful because you know this enters the canon of Psycho, of Silence of the Lambs, where, like that writer said, there really is such a small pool of trans characters who aren't, like, mm-hmm. dissociative identity disorder. And, like, making trans this, like, a mental illness rather than, like, mm-hmm. something... Like, trans is a mental illness that needs to be cured, or, like, that makes you violent, versus it being, like, the exact opposite of someone just being born the raw like in the wrong body basically and so it's like he was like grappling with understanding but still wanted to make a villain out of it and it's very interesting in and tr- watching it and knowing how problematic it is but like seeing somehow maybe he thought he was like parsing through feelings about trans identity in the 1980s and this is not excusing or anything it just is interesting to see how he's using these kind of pre-existing harmful tropes to work through something in the 19, like a 1980 setting. Yeah. I, I definitely feel like there is a, a, a push and a push and pull there. Uh, certainly the, the, the inclusion of the, the Donahue clip feels like he's trying to put something into a context, uh, not in a way that's uh, working. 
Um, but um, yeah, I wonder. I wonder if there's. It feels like there would maybe an opportunity. I'm just trying to think about how could you do this. Is there any way to even do this movie? Uh, I, I wonder if there's some something with the the therapist that uh, Michael Caine goes to see. Um, you know, there might have been some some opportunity with that character to kind of put a lot of this language uh, into into that character's mouth and have him put things in some context. I'm not sure. It is it is interesting though that that we do get a movie because I because again I feel that and I, I I agree I do think that that De Palma is attempting to understand in a way that probably was very difficult to understand in the 1980s where we didn't really have the language that we have today. And we don't have um, as much of a progress, uh, a progressive society in some ways that, that we did in, in the eighties, because the, the sequence, Mary Beth, that you're talking about at the very end surprised me that it was actually included in here, because again, mm-hmm. it's these characters trying to understand trans identity in a way that, I don't. It feel. It feels. It felt weird seeing it in in this kind of movie because it's not something you would again see in in Psycho or something you would see in in all these other films. It's an actual sequence where people are having a candid conversation about it, and it's a little bit kind of played for laugh. Unfortunately, I, I even though I do think it's funny that the tables around them, the old lady is just like you know grabbing her necklace and it's like ooh, you know there's that kind of aspect of it, but. It's it's a it's a frank conversation that I every time I I, I watch this movie I'm surprised that when it yeah. comes up because it 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 feels I don't know it it feels um out of place I guess in 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 the movie in a way but it's also kind of again maybe trying to grapple with this identity so I I don't know it's it's once we start to dig into that kind of aspect of it it, it gets a little a little icky for me but. Well, and De Palma himself, too, I feel like is a little bit of a provocateur, too. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, I feel like he does kind of like to push buttons a little bit. So it's like, and that, again, not an excuse for this, but it's almost like he was like, all right, let's do some controversy. Let's do something that's going to make the people talk. And like, let's look at something that's not looked at in cinema quite a bit. And that's kind of how I see De Palma a little bit as a little bit of a provocative filmmaker and maybe that was also like one of his motivations here was like ooh <laughs> like titillating and weird and handling this subject so i'm always curious about like what what do you try to like what are you accomplishing like what do you think you're accomplishing with something like this and having this kind of representation i do think that maybe he was more focused on the idea of repression because here we have you know the the first character we're introduced to is um a sexually pr- repressed woman that is in an un kind of it, you kind of get the feeling that it's an unloving relationship, mm-hmm. and so we have that, and then we also have her her foil, the doctor, who is you know society is is repressing her actuality, and so I, I do wonder if that might be the the kind of theme that maybe he's trying that De Palma is trying to explore between yeah. these two ideas of repression, because then we also have in this, in this triangle, we have Liz who is not repressed. She has an active sex life. She works in, in, in she's a sex worker and she, you know, is working the stock market. So I, I think that when you have these three points, I, I do think reductively and maybe, and definitely misbegotten, but I do think that that might be kind of what De Palma is trying to explore here. I would agree with that. Yeah, and it, it does feel like Liz is 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 the uh, all the signifiers that he's pointing at her. She's like our our hero, certainly mm-hmm. the person uh, who uh, feels like they have life figured out uh, comparatively to everybody yeah. else. I mean, even the the Keith Gordon character that you know the kid um, mm-hmm. seems pretty 
you know, kind of uh, uh, miserable. Yeah. But yeah, I, th- I think it's like a combination of that. And maybe he, he had this, he had this premise that, uh, to kind of do a, a, a homage updating of Psycho and just couldn't let it go. And maybe uh, thought he was uh, updating in a way that felt, felt fresh. Um, but, uh, maybe, maybe, uh, is not. Right. Right. Or is not. Yeah. Right. Um, so I, I'm curious because you said are you are you you're a fan of De Palma, correct? I am, and I, I, I yeah highly recommend that that De Palma doc from five years ago because I always liked De Palma, but that that and I saw it on the big screen too, so it was so great to see so many images <sighs> from movies like like this, Dress to Kill or Blowout, uh, up, up on a big screen. Um, where I was like, oh wow, I want to see all of De Palma's movies on a big screen. Then there were a bunch of movies I forgot he he had even done, a bunch I hadn't seen. He's really interesting. Um, you know, I, you know, you have, like I said, that these, these, uh, blow out and dress to kill and, and, uh, body double, uh, kind of feel like this, this kind of weird trilogy to me. I, I love, uh, but I mean, th- that the same guy did the untouchables and mission impossible. Um, and, and, a, and a movie like casualties of war, um, which was like kind of his passion project that he really had to, to fight for to get made. Um, for years, and that's a that's a, a very dark, painful story. Yeah, yeah, he's he's a he's a real a really interesting uh, director. Because well, the reason why I'm asking is that I'm I, De Palma is sort of a blind spot for me. I've seen Carrie, I've seen um, Dress to Kill, Untouchables, Mission Impossible, and I believe those are the only ones I've seen. So, what what movies of his do you do you really recommend? Is is it Blowout and Body Double? I think so. I think Blowout to me is um, is the best of his kind of uh de palma e movies where he's all his uh kind of kinks and and wild camera work and and uh phobias and uh conspiracy theories all come to play i think it's really really okay. successful really successful movie i take it back i've also seen phantom of the paradise i forgot he did that oh, okay oh, that's I, right. yes, I so good that one so too. good it's such oh, a good movie. So I mean, I, I could have done Scarred for Life on that, too. I mean, that, that is so intense. <laughs> oh, I mean, his, his whole filmography. So fucking good. His filmography is incredible. Like, we were, ta- we're, we're, we're just talking about it right now. It is wild. Like, the range of this man and the things he has made. The Godfather. I mean, like, this, not the Godfather. Jesus, Scarface. <laughs> Scarface. Scarface is unbelievable. <laughs> It's it's I so good. I haven't seen like the I I know yeah I haven't seen like the last five De Palma movies. Uh, I try I know some people really love Femme Fatale. I, I tried to get into it. I need to I need to I'm going to try it again. Um, but yeah, he's he 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 swings for the fences. He swings for the fences. Uh, he does. I, I remember seeing Bonfire of the Vanities with my dad as a kid. Uh, that is not a great film. Um, there's a, a really interesting book, The Devil's Candy, and then they did a podcast version of it about the, the basically the, the behind the scenes making of The Bonfire of the Vanities and how a movie based on such a juicy best selling book could go so, so, so wrong. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, I've heard of The Bonfire of Vanities, but never seen it. What a cast, though. Tom Hanks, Bruce Willis, Melanie Griffith. He also has a movie. I don't know if comedy is quite his thing. He has a movie I'm, I've been intrigued by for a while, though I, I, I just have not brought myself to check it out danny devito and joe piscopo and wise guys it's a comedy from the mid 80s oh i have not seen yeah i I remember i haven't heard great things but i think i want to watch it anyway yeah i haven't i haven't seen that one either so before we wrap up do we want to just briefly touch on our 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 ending sequence here and our like final reveal of michael caine and this kind of climactic wild moment that blows my mind whenever i watch it (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, there aren't a lot of movies to me that uh, can pull off a dream at the end. It usually you're like, oh, come on. But this one, it's it's just so ambitious. It's so long. It works so well. It also, I think, speaks to her, you know, trauma that she's experienced and that, uh, you know, we really we really like this this her character a lot. Uh, but she's been through a lot. So it's not going to be uh, easy an easy uh, um uh, process for her to get back to normal so I, I feel like in that way it's earned but yeah like mm-hmm. i said that that sequence in the in the mental hospital um it's just it's just surreal enough where later you think you're like oh how did i not know that was a dream <laughs> right. you know what i mean right. when you're yeah. watching i don't think you would ever suspect it and then and then like the movie starts with angie dickinson and in this interesting shower sequence now you have this this kind of bookend shower sequence um that that is shot from another this this very disorienting like high angle yes um and and just that 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 whole steamy shower sequence and and michael michael kane's uh nurse shoes um peeking out of Leaving the, the, nurse the doorway shoes there <laughs> oh. you know it surprised me I'm, I'm i'm glad you mentioned that that looking back on it, the mental institution sequence seems a little surreal but even on this rewatch because again this is only the second time i've seen this i was like oh yeah that's right uh, she comes back and tries to kill her, and I was like, "Oh wait, no, that was just a dream." It, it, it's 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 staged so perfectly well at that sequence that you can't even get mad at that. It. It's it's a very extended <laughs> dream yeah. gotcha moment. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it feels satisfying for the movie. Mm-hmm. It's 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 not like uh, you know the uh, Kane has been caught and things are wrapping up, and it's almost like oh, and now we get this whole extra, uh, you know, probably the, the third most terrifying sequence in the movie. Um. Uh, yeah. No. I feel like it, it. It works really well. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, do we want to wrap up and give this our rating out of five? Sounds good to me. Hell yeah! All right, Terry. How mm-hmm. many museum chases out of five do you give Dress to Kill? You know, it's. I, it. This is one of those things where, I'm. I'm both like in love with this movie and a little bit repulsed by by some aspects of it. I just it's really hard for me not to give this really high marks because it is is a technically beautiful film. I I think that this this movie for tackling the subject matter very B movie kind of feel to it, very uh drive-in kind of feel to like the the lascivious storyline, but it's filmed so perfectly. It's just it's acted incredibly well from from um well I'll say the female characters again like we said Michael Caine's performance is very stilted and probably not his best, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I got to give this honestly four and a half um, museum chases out of five. Cause I just, I think, I do think it is a perfect distillation of, of this movie. I have to say that from the trans perspective, it makes me feel icky, but is like, it also is kind of a masterpiece of a film in, in my opinion. So I, it's, it's very hard for me to really kind of rate this one personally, but I, I think technically four and a half out of five, it, it's a fantastic film. What about you, Mary Beth? So I'm going to go with a four. I think I, I love, I do really love this movie. I think it is incredible. It's beautiful. It's just impeccably shot. But again, like the issues, like it doesn't age well. The issues with it mm. knock it down a star for me, but I still really appreciate it for what it is and like what he accomplishes from a technical perspective. And I mean, like that first 40 minutes is just like an absolutely gorgeous study about intimacy and repression. And I think Angie Dickinson and Nancy Allen 
are turning out some like, iconic performances mm-hmm. here. And it's just such a joy to watch a director having fun with split diopter and split screens and playing with form the way that he does. It's just a really, it's a treat to watch that happen on screen and be able to watch it and have this exist in the world for all of its issues. Um, but Duncan, you have the final word. How many museum chases out of five oh do you give oh Dress to Kill? This is so much pressure. Also, I hope uh, <laughs> I hope that wasn't too uh, uh, disruptive with my dog uh, just coughing. Um, oh, I think human <laughs> i know he's, he's got he's got chronic bronchitis so I, he's usually pretty quiet Puppy. is he a squishy um, face dog um no he's all over my instagram should i okay I'll look. well no we're on a podcast i guess i should I'll look up. I'll look um up. he's he's super cute he's a he's a he's a he's a little mutt he's like a teddy bear um i oh boy see uh, I'll, I'll, i'm gonna give this four four uh museum chases out of five um, yeah, obviously the big, you, you know, I feel I feel like what keeps it out of the the top tier uh, Brian De Palma classic canon is the problematic trans representation. Uh, when I've talked about this movie with other other people, and I, I think if that feels like something you don't want to dig into when popping in a movie on a Tuesday night, I think Blowout is a a, a better one for you, and uh, and uh, and and, a, and a, a better film. I feel like that that um, um, on on all. Uh, aspects but yes the tech technical aspects of this movie uh the two strong female performances um just some you know amazing amazing sequences uh also you know for me obviously this is a i have to rewatch it every couple of years just as a, a bomb to get over the scarred for life trauma that i experienced <laughs> and, and, and proved myself I'm, a, I'm an adult now um yeah so for all those reasons really really uh enjoy this movie maybe you know there's a couple little moments of uh there's some there's some stilted dialogue in there for sure but i feel like that's uh that's kind of a de palma staple too um to a certain extent so i was really excited um to have an opportunity or just have an excuse to rewatch this movie and super excited to to come on you guys did such a uh, uh such you both did such a good job leading uh the discussion especially um uh when it came to the uh Kane character and uh and kind of all the all the uh problematic aspects uh that that are part of this movie and part of the history of this movie. Well, thank you so much for for bringing this movie to us so we could rewatch it cuz uh like I said, it's only the second time I've ever seen it. I I love it. I do love it. Yeah. Um, but where can our listeners find you and what do you have that you can plug or talk about? Oh, don't get me started. Don't get me plugging. <laughs> I'll keep it short. I'll keep it short. Right now, it's just it's the one. It's the big plug. It's the big plug. But uh, I'm on I'm on Twitter uh, too much. Uh, Duncan <laughs> Berm. So basically my name and the, and the, and the first syllable, Duncan B.R. Duncan and then B I R M. Uh, so that's where you can find me at uh, all hours of the night. And uh, yeah, the movie Who Invited Them, which I should say for your listeners, if they're fans, if you love Party Down, uh, Veronica Mars, that means you might love Ryan Hansen, who's in it, who's awesome. As you said, Tim- Timothy Granaderos from 13 uh, Reasons Why, an untitled horror movie. Melissa Tang, who's so awesome from the Kaminsky Method, and Perry Matfield, who's the star of In the Dark. Um, so, the, you know, there, there's, uh, we have a, a wonderful bigger cast, but those were our four leads. They were like, a, you know, the four legs of a very strong table, I think. Uh, and I think they knocked it out of the park. So the, the movie's on Shutter, and it's also uh, on uh, AMC+. Plus. I didn't even know I had AMC+, Plus, but if, when I went to <laughs> Amazon Prime, there's the movie. And that's where my parents watch it, too. So a lot of people, I think, have, uh, have uh, AMC+. Plus. Um, so, yeah, those are the two big things. 
Um, if you like the movie, uh, yeah, t- tweet at me or, uh, I don't know, leave it a review somewhere. Um, and if not, um, don't feel like you have to let me know that you paid it. <laughs> yeah, don't do that shit. Most people don't. Most people <laughs> don't. Most do people that. seem to like it. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, yeah, but this was a real, a real treat. So thank you for having me uh, on to relive, uh, relive that trauma. Thank you. Of course. Um, so listeners, you've heard from us, but we want to hear from you. What was your experience with Dress to Kill? Send us an email at scarredbellypodcast at gmail.com, or you can reach out to us directly on Twitter. I am at MB McAndrews. And I'm a Gaily Dreadful. And of course, don't forget to follow the podcast on Twitter at Scarred Podcast. And please don't forget to review, rate, and subscribe, and... Uh, maybe throw some dollars with our wave on Patreon. Yeah. Please. That'd be great. Um, thank you to Eric Carr for our artwork. Thank you to Sean Keller for our music. Thank you everyone for listening. Please stay safe out there, but most importantly, stay creepy. And until next time. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>